Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. Maybe you've had an embarrassing memory slip even though you were sure you knew the piece backwards and forwards. Or perhaps you crashed and burned in an audition or lesson or studio class, even though you felt as well prepared as you've ever been. It's natural to feel discouraged and experience some heavy doubts when we face setbacks like this. So how is it, though, that some folks seem to respond to situations like this by bouncing right back and raising the level of their performance? Are they just built differently? Or is it a quality that we can all develop? It's been said that we are all natural storytellers, and we do spend a lot of time weaving the events of our lives into a story about ourselves. For instance, if it's been a rough month and you hurt your shoulder at CrossFit, where do your thoughts go? As you drive home, maybe your brain starts to ruminate on the injury, which starts to coalesce into a larger story about you and what it all means. Your thoughts could turn into a story about your fragility, like, dang, why am I so injury prone? Or it might go in a totally different direction, like, dang, maybe this is a sign I need to work on my flexibility and mobility. This is an indicator of your explanatory style, which researchers have identified as a key factor in our ability to get back up when we've been knocked down. If you tend to attribute setbacks to causes that are stable, such as I started playing the oboe too late, and global, like I've never had much self-discipline, and believe it's all because of something inside of you, like I can't put my finger on what it is exactly, but there's something wrong or lacking with me, you may have a pessimistic explanatory style. If, on the other hand, you tend to go the opposite direction, attributing setbacks to temporary situational factors that you have some ability to change, you may have a more optimistic explanatory style. And why does any of this matter? To see how all of this storytelling plays out in the context of sport performance, a group of French researchers recruited 62 adolescents who had spent at least one year playing basketball in school. They were assigned to one of three groups— an optimistic group, a pessimistic group, and a neutral group, based on their scores on an assessment of explanatory style. Then, they were given 15 minutes to practice a dribbling exercise, which involved maneuvering through an obstacle course while dribbling a basketball. Next, they completed their first timed attempt at the obstacle course, after which they received some failure feedback about their performance. No matter how well or poorly they did, they were told, quote, you have not produced a very good time compared to the other pupils who have performed. 
but once you have rested, you will have the possibility to train and test a second time. Then after a short break, they completed their second timed attempt. The researchers were curious about how participants would respond to the negative feedback in three areas. One was performance. Would they get discouraged and perform worse, or would they redouble their efforts and do even better? The second was expectations of success, as in, would the failure feedback affect their confidence? And the third was anxiety. Would they start doubting themselves and feel more pressure and anxiety? So how did the groups do? Well, the optimistic group demonstrated a significant improvement in performance from the first test to the second, improving from 135 seconds to about 129 seconds. And this is, of course, something where faster time equals better performance. The neutral group even appeared to improve a tiny bit as well. The pessimistic group, on the other hand, did not improve. Their performance stayed almost exactly the same, at about 140 seconds each time. The negative feedback also had a significant impact on the pessimistic group's expectations for success. In response to the question, what are your chances in 100 of performing a good time? Their expected scores went from an average of about 51 before their first attempt to about 27 before their second attempt. The neutral group's expectation scores also dropped, but not by as much. Theirs went from about 56 before the first test to about 42 before the second test. Meanwhile, the optimistic group scores dropped a smidge from about 56 before their first test to about 51 before their second test. However, this wasn't a statistically significant margin, which is to say that their optimistic explanatory style appeared to protect them, because even though they got pretty negative feedback about their first performance, their performance expectations still remained as high as ever. And we don't know exactly what the participants said to themselves about their performance, but perhaps the optimistic folks' stories centered around needing to try harder, focus more intently, or tweak their strategy or technique slightly in order to improve their time. Whereas the pessimistic folks may have instead told themselves a story about how they weren't good at basketball, how the course was difficult or unfair, or began creating a narrative about what others might be thinking about them after seeing their poor performance on the course. And finally, with regards to anxiety and pressure, the pessimistic groups seemed to get much more stressed out about the second test than the optimistic or neutral groups. When measured right before the test, the pessimistic group's heart rate averaged about 145 beats per minute, while the neutral group was around 136, and the optimistic group averaged about 132. So what are we to do with all of this? One of my enduring memories from childhood is a time when I struggled to open a bag of crackers. I was getting frustrated, but I think my mom was even more frustrated just watching me because at some point she got a little annoyed and told me to look more carefully at the bag. And indeed, there was a little notch already pre-cut on the side, which made opening the bag much easier. She told me that there's always an easier or better way to do something, but it's not always going to be obvious, and that I have to look harder instead of making try harder my default solution for every problem. I learned that failure was not the fault of my tiny, weak, uncoordinated fingers, and that the most useful response to setbacks is not to look for what's wrong with who we are, but assume instead that it's what we did that needs tweaking. Or, as I've heard coaches sometimes say, blame the strategy, never the player. Or translated, blame your strategy, not yourself. When you experience the inevitable speed bump this week, whether it's in the practice room, a situation at work, or a new holiday cookie recipe that goes horribly awry, take a moment to ask yourself why it happened. 
Not why, like, why do I suck at baking, but more like, what did I miss? What changes could I make next time? And am I absolutely positive that the recipe called for baking soda and not baking powder? Of course, it's one thing if we're talking about a speed bump, like a note that doesn't speak. But what if it's a speed bump like anxiety that spirals out of control on stage? Or a string of discouraging performance experiences, even after you sounded pretty great in practice sessions and lessons? For what it's worth, this is a universal experience, whether you've been playing for one year or 50 years, so it's definitely not you. And fortunately, performing more effectively isn't like frequent flyer miles, where you have to be patient and keep trudging along, hoping that as the miles accumulate, good things will happen. Beating nerves and anxiety and having more of those great days when you get into a groove and enjoy being on stage, it's a little more like cooking. As in, there's a recipe, a set of ingredients in different proportions that work together and complement each other and get layered in at the right time. You don't just put a bunch of random, unmeasured, intuitively appealing ingredients to a pot at the same time, set it, and forget it. Unless maybe that's how an Instant Pot works? Is that how an Instant Pot works? Anyhow, having more fun on stage is about weaving together different aspects of practice, each with a purpose. A dash of practice strategies that maximize day-to-day improvements. A pinch of practice strategies that build confidence. A sprinkling of practice strategies that cultivate more flexible motor skills so you can adapt quickly to new acoustics and have the courage to take more risks, for instance. There's no single one-size-fits-all recipe, of course, but having clear guidelines can make each day's practice feel much more purposeful and productive, and enable the sharing of your work in front of an audience or audition committee to be an experience that's filled more with excitement than anxiety. If you've had a nagging feeling that something in your practice or preparation needs to change, but you weren't sure exactly what, I'd love to share with you the most helpful research-based strategies and techniques that I've learned in the last couple decades. It's all in a course that's based on the semester-long classes that I teach at Juilliard and the Cleveland Institute. And if you sign up during the holiday buy one get one event, which ends Sunday, December 3rd at 11.59 p.m. Pacific, you'll receive a second bonus account that you can gift to a practice buddy of your choice. And why a second account? Well, not just because it's the holiday season or so you can split the cost with a buddy, but because the research suggests that there really is something to the saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. You can see what other musicians are saying about Beyond Practicing and get the buy one, get one offer at bulletproofmusician.com slash beyondpracticing. 